How can we use our investment portfolios and our purses to promote the values we care about? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. When institutional investors divest from fossil fuel companies, does it make a difference or is the impact merely symbolic? Some say it's better to keep your stock and your influence using investor dollars to encourage change from within. That's what we do in our business. We follow the carbon. Where there's carbon, it's our job to go invest in solutions to mitigate it and then figure out how to scale it up. Pratima Rangarajan is CEO of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, an investment fund backed by some of the world's largest oil companies, including BP, Chevron, and ExxonMobil. She and others, with a fiduciary responsibility for managing other people's money, will join us in the second part of today's show to talk about sustainable investing. First, with inequality booming and climate change looming, is a green stock portfolio really part of the solution? Or do we need a whole new kind of capitalism? We've come to the point where making more stuff in order to sell more stuff, in order to make more money, is breaking down. That's Hope Jaren, a professor in the Department of Geosciences at the University of Oslo and author of The Story of More, How We Got to Climate Change and Where to Go From Here. She joins us in the first part of the show, along with Rebecca Henderson, professor at the Harvard Business School and author of Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire, to explore how fighting climate change often involves grappling with issues of wealth, power, and patriarchy. Our conversation begins with Rebecca describing some fundamental flaws in capitalism as we know it. We have a pricing and regulatory problem. We're not charging the full costs of economic activity. I don't think of capitalism as a system for producing more. I think about it as a system for producing efficiently. It, uh, It makes sure that the right people do the right things at the right time. And when it's working well, it's just fantastic. I don't think we're going to solve the problems we face without capitalism. But we have to have real prices and real regulation. So let's just take beef, for example. Um, The production of beef is uh, responsible for a very significant fraction of agricultural emissions and takes up an enormous amount of the planet's land. And so every time we eat a hamburger, we're in effect causing very significant harm because we are personally participating in warming the planet. And yet, beef is super cheap. We're not paying for the harm that we're causing. And so every kind of light in the system says, more beef, more beef, more beef, because it's cheap and people love it. And so we need as a society to be able to say, you know, beef is amazing, but it should be rare, it should be special, it should be offset, um, and beef should be expensive. And so we will fix this. In fact, it's fairly clear to see how to fix it. The the only thing it requires is a massive cultural and political movement changing the rules that constrain capitalism. But as soon as we can do that, we're done. We, we, We know how to fix this problem. Rebecca, you're quite optimistic, and you point out in your book a lot of examples of of companies acting in kind of uh, uh, enlightened self-interest and incite leaders that are doing things kind of on the margins, uh, you know, the Patagonians of the world, the Paul Pullmans, the Unilevers of the world. 
but companies are also uh, doing one thing in their very slick communications. When it comes to policy, they play a double game. They they speak about climate change in public, but their lobbyists and their firms in Washington, D.C. do either don't push on climate policy or they actively try to slow it down. Uh, they support the Paris Climate Accord. Yes, you know, they tweet about uh, Trump backing out of Paris, et cetera, but they don't really put a lot of muscle or effort into climate policy where it matters inside the Beltway. They're much more concerned with taxes, immigration, those sorts of things. They're afraid of alienating the other side. So I'd like you to respond to that double game that that I think companies play. Even some of the most sincere uh, chief executives don't really lean in on policy in places where we're in, in the dark halls of power. I think it's super important to differentiate between different companies. Um, There are some companies that are behaving really badly indeed. They're funding massive public relations campaigns saying, we can keep burning fossil fuels, it's the future, it's going to be great. And at the same time, they are pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into uh, modern day forms of climate denialism and into politics in ways that have been totally destructive. I think there are some firms that are trying to behave better. And yes, they're doing things inside their own operations. Um, So I'm good friends with uh, Hugh Welsh, who runs uh, the US operation of a chemical company called DSM. And he's very active in introducing innovations like clean cow, which is a pill you give to cows to stop them farting as often. It turns out that cow farting and cow belching is a huge source of methane. And so it would be really good to reduce that. So DSM is funding a number of projects like that. They're very sustainably oriented. They talk about it in public. And one of the things that Hugh has been doing is is working with the Chamber of Commerce to change the Chamber's position on climate change. So there are firms that are acting consistently. Unilever, for example, is absolutely front and center in pushing for uh, changing climate policy. If you think of the alliance called We Are Still In, that's working with governors and states right across the US, they've succeeded working in partnership with governors and uh, local NGOs in putting in place commitments that will get the US to within shouting distance of the Paris Agreement. So there are firms out there that are trying. Are there firms that are saying all kinds of good things and doing bad things? Yes. Are there firms that are saying they care about climate but not advocating for it? Yes. Do we have to change them? Absolutely. But I think it's a mistake to tar all of business with the same brush. One of the things that uh, ultimately underlines some of that is the concentration of of power. Because we have, and Rebecca, you write about how the top, was it top 40 people in the world control as much wealth as the bottom 50%, which just is, uh, how is that not shameful in any system that produces that amount of concentration of wealth and power? And Hope Jaron, you write about GMOs are safe for humans to eat, but farmers are forced to buy seeds from near monopolies, Monsanto and DuPont. So I'd like to hear Hope talk about that concentration of power, which you write about You know, in, in Iowa, how the small farms have gotten smaller and the huge farms have gotten huger. And we have this disparity of power that underlies all of this, Hope. Yeah, I mean... There's also a a fundamental question here in the changing nature of human labor, right? So so there were folks that were very concerned with population increase in the 70s 
And, you know, how was the earth going to feed all these people? And a tremendous amount of um, research was done on plants and animals. And it resulted in a whole new set of, you know, brave new world, uh, all new consortium of creatures, really. I mean, farming just doesn't take as many people because, you know, to get a bushel of corn, you used to have to, you used to have to plant a basketball sized court and now you can get it out of about a parking space you know pigs used to have five piglets a year now mother pigs have 10 piglets a year twice a year right and so the amount of food that we can create per unit labor has just skyrocketed and so uh, that that labor has been consolidated using you know industrial um fossil f uh, industrialized fossil fossil fuel driven industrialization yeah i mean enhanced technology and enhanced yield wildly enhanced yield which has always been done through breeding um is is changing the amount of labor that's needed to produce way too much food right and so also the seed folks are just a few people producing all of this food. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to ask questions about, you know, is it right to have the entire country's food supply concentrated into the hands and pockets of a few people to, to sell and withhold as they see fit? By mass producing all this and way too much, you know, I mean, corn is the great example. We can't find weight. We turn it into sugar and squirt it all over everything. We can't even cram it down our mouths fast enough. We're having to turn it into fuel. We burn fuel to plant corn, to grow corn, to turn it into fuel, to fuel automobiles. It's like an environmental Mobius strip. It's, I mean, we're doing crazy things at this point just because we can produce so much food and we are desperate to do something with it besides feed truly hungry people. Rebecca, your thoughts on that, addressing that, that concentration of power in, in capitalism in, in corporate America right now that has essentially kind of taken over the government. Who's going to tackle that concentration of power and are we going to solve climate? Because climate challenges presents costs to some of that concentrate, that, that very concentrated power. I don't think we're going to solve climate change until we address the concentration of economic power. And that means both addressing inequality and changing the rules of the game. Um, I'm sure we need to get political. I, I talk a bunch about genuinely free and fair capitalism. And free and fair capitalism means you compete hard against other firms. It, it means you don't go to Washington and change the rules such that there are just a few of you in control fixing the prices. And we have increasing evidence pushing down wages. One of the reasons inequality has increased is because economic power has become so much more concentrated. So labor has to work for a few, you know, people have to work for one of a few firms. And at the same time, that concentrated economic power is pushing back against moves like raising the minimum wage or may I get topical, guaranteed sick leave, um, or comprehensive health care. I mean, these, these moves that would really help um, the lower 50, the poorer 50% of the population are actively resisted by this concentrated power. Um, and I think we have to fix inequality because without it, we won't generate the political momentum to address climate change and because we should fix it for its own sake, let me say. 
and we have to we have to fix politics. So one of the things I find myself saying a lot, and I know how crazy this sounds, is that business should get actively involved in remaking our political institutions, in making democracy much more ground level, much more responsive, and please in pulling money out of politics. So I think business is going to suffer immensely from the current situation and that the smart thing to do is realize that and say, okay, let's disarm, let's pull the money out, let's pull ourselves out, let's put um, the government, a, a partnership between government and business at the heart of our society in the service of the whole society. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about reimagining capitalism. Coming up, challenging some deeply held beliefs about the role of markets. Every idea is on the table. It doesn't matter how crazy something sounds. You can always get somebody who will sit down and talk about how to scale that up to the point where it changes the world. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about capitalism and the climate crisis with Hope Jaron, professor at the University of Oslo and author of The Story of More, and Rebecca Henderson, professor at the Harvard Business School and author of Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Hope and Rebecca both write about the gender barriers they encountered in their careers in science and business. Oceanographer Sylvia Earle broke the glass ceiling in science in 1970. She joined other scientists living undersea for up to 60 days. This clip from the documentary Mission Blue shows how the first group of female aquanauts was portrayed. Now a team of divers will attempt to live for two weeks as quiet residents on the sea floor. Ironically, these aquanauts are not men with extraordinary physical endurance and stamina, but five young and attractive women, the world's first real-life mermaids. Their leader is a renowned scientist, Dr. Sylvia Earle, a marine botanist and an experienced diver. That's a clip from 1970 talking about Sylvia Earle and some other scientists, uh, female scientists, breaking into the the world of bearded men scientists. Hope Jaron, you're 50 years ago. I know you've encountered some of that. We're told one, at one point to have prevented from ending your lab, I think, because you were pregnant. So how far have we come in that 50 years since that uh, was recorded? Um, I think the problems in science in terms of sexism are part and parcel with the basic challenges of walking through the world wearing a woman's body. I mean, I think that, the, you know, feminist theory brings us back to um, uh, violence against women, reproductive rights, and equal pay for equal work. And, and the, those are the three core issues that that we struggle with in in every profession in every field of life in every every theater of of being and academia has has problems around each of those you know we have harm violence rape murder you know in in academia and in in science right we have problems being paid equally for equal labor and we also have tremendous awkwardness at the very least and and discrimination associated with women um, uh, 
invoking their fertility and you know having children taking care of children etc and so um yes i i think those things are with us they find a different expression culturally as we move through time but um i feel that this is our piece of the struggle what i've never understood is why people are surprised to to find that these these truisms that that are so core to 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 surviving as a woman also have their expression within academia and within science per se. Rebecca Anderson, you write about uh, presentations, giving presentations in the highest heels you can imagine. And you said that sometimes you get concerned if you start talking about values or purpose, they'll write you off as a simpering female. You know, what's been your experience uh, in the business world and business education? This is very controversial, but I think it's sometimes useful to think about men's way of looking at the world versus women's way at looking at the world. And it's controversial because, of course, men are very different and women are very different. So I'm talking about a central tendency, a particular expression of masculinity, which I think one sees in the business world, that life is about competition, life is about the individual, life is about aggression, and that that's what we strive for. And life is also about rational thought, about managing the numbers, about showing that you're smart. And as I say, I don't mean to say that that's like men and this is like women, but that central tendency, that way of being in the world has become very dominant in the business community. And in my own career, um, I thought it was necessary to learn that language and to be able to really participate in that conversation. I mean, it's one of the reasons I have an undergraduate degree in engineering and a PhD in economics. I wanted there to be absolutely no doubt that I could handle the numbers, understand the bottom line, compete as hard as any of the rest of them. Um, and I still find now when my research is more than ever focused on questions of you know, what we sometimes call mushy stuff. This drives me crazy, as if values and emotions were somehow not real or not important, when in reality, as we know now from the modern psychological research, most people are driven most of the time by their emotions and their values. And all the rational stuff we come up with is our forebrain making up excuses for what the subconscious is just cruising through. Um, so, yes, th this has been a real tension in my life in the last 10, 15 years. Um, there's one sort of story I, I sometimes tell to illustrate it. So I, I teach students about climate change and the dangers it represents. And I often say, but there's a business case. As business people, we can make money by developing solutions to this problem. And that's really important. And again, I'm generalizing horribly. But many of the men will come up to me and say, Rebecca, you know, tell me more about that business case. I want to be really certain. And, and far more of the women come up and say, wait, we are destroying the planet in the service of our bottom line. Uh, how, how do we stop doing that? You know, it, it's, and again, it, it, it's a generalization, but that is the tension in our society uh, that I think we all have to live inside. Hope, Jaren, I've heard, I've learned from some environmental activists, climate justice activists, activists about how racism, patriarchy are really at the root that 
a lot of the conversations I've had about climate changing this technology, changing this policy, don't get to that deeper root. And they would say that getting back to more communal, community-based, nurturing system away from patriarchy is essential for really solving climate. What do you think? Well, the, where I run into it the most is when I talk to people about overpopulation. And I've had a number of men really um, <laughs> come up to me and with, with seem, seemingly like some pretty severe neurosis about, about, you know, these uncontrollable women everywhere having baby after baby <laughs> and, and the planet is doubling and doubling beyond control. I looked into it and, and people have been freaking out about overpopulation basically since they were able to count each other. Um, there's all these writings from Mesopotamia talking about, you know, can the earth uh, handle, you know, all, all these people occurring. Um, one thing that, uh, I did a lot of research on my on my last book, The Story of More, and the one thing that we can see with lowered um, birth rates is that when the gender gap closes, that means when opportunity, economic opportunity, health outcomes, and also political participation is close between men and women within a society, then the number of children born within a woman's lifetime is low, uh, low at replacement level or, or, or even lower than that. And that doesn't um, just apply to rich countries. It uh, doesn't mean that there's an awful lot of opportunity there. Uh, it just means that, the, that men and women are sharing in the amount of opportunity and, and justice and fairness there. And uh, that is where we have the lowest number of births per woman's lifetime. So I always say that the only surefire way we can reduce population growth is to close the gender gap. Um, and uh, that if that isn't fundamental to reversing or slowing down the damage to the earth, by, I can't think of, a, of another example more tightly correlated to um, patriarchal inequality than that. Hope Jaren, professor in the Department of Geoscience at the University of Oslo and author of The Story of More, How We Got to Climate Change and Where to Go from Here. We also heard from Rebecca Henderson, professor at the Harvard Business School. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Short of rebuilding capitalism from the ground up, can the stock market be used as a tool for climate action? Climate risk is investment risk, and I believe that we are going to see key elements of sustainability rise in importance uh, for companies and for governments and regulators. Brian Deese is Global Head of Sustainable Investing at BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. A former aide to President Barack Obama, Deese was recently tapped to lead President-elect Joe Biden's National Economic Council. In this conversation recorded before that appointment, he's joined by Lori Keith, a portfolio manager with Parnassus Investments, a leader in the field of socially responsible investing, or SRIs, and Pratima Rangarajan, CEO of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, an investment fund backed by some of the world's largest oil companies, including BP, Chevron, and ExxonMobil. Pratima spent more than 10 years in the renewable energy business. She explains why she left to go work for an investment fund run by some of the largest oil companies in the world. You know, a few years ago, I decided to just work on climate uh, directly. And so I started studying the data on carbon emissions. And I took home two important learnings. 
at that time, we had less than two decades, just like we have now in our carbon budget to stay under two degrees. Uh, and with renewables at less than 10% of the energy mix, it just seemed to me that we didn't have enough time to scale renewables to cover the rest of the 90%, not to mention the growth. So we have to work on the rest of the 90%. You know, as I told my kids, I have to stop working the chocolate chips and go work on the cookies as well. The second realization I came to is that there are substantial sources of carbon that are emitted in this world that are not about energy. And here I can just take CMAT. It's an example we all know and love. Uh, it's responsible for about 7 billion tons of uh, gigatons, billion tons of carbon dioxide every year. It would be the third largest country if it was a country. And less than half of cement emissions come from the energy piece of cement. The rest of it is really chemistry because we take carbonaceous material and make it into cement. So it actually just emits carbon dioxide. So when you look at both of those, I realized that I was really working on a small piece of the pie. I wanted to work um, on the overall climate challenge, which is the carbon challenge. So one of the, you know, the pleasures of my job is that I can just look at this from the lens of following the carbon. That's what we do in our business. We follow the carbon. Where there's carbon, it's our job to figure out, uh, to go invest in solutions to mitigate it and then figure out how to scale it up. So I'm following the carbon, Greg. Brian Deese, uh, uh, BlackRock is the largest uh, investment manager in the world, also mainly an index house where you buy uh, indices that are constructed by other companies. You think that divestment is, is simplistic. It's the wrong frame. Tell, you know, uh, there's maybe a bad title for this conversation. What, what, what do you, and get your challenge on, on divestment. It's, it's too simplistic, too binary. What's wrong with divestment? Well, I guess I'd say a couple of things. Um, the first is that um, I think we come at this from the perspective of risk and investment risk and trying to fully understand and reflect the risks um, that, that, that we're all talking about here into investment processes. Uh, we did announce earlier this year uh, that on our um, active portfolios, which means the portfolios where we have discretion um, when we're managing a client's assets, uh, we, we did announce that um, on, on that portion where we have discretion, that we'd be exiting all of our exposures to thermal coal producers, because that was an area where we identified that we think that the risk, the business model risk itself is pronounced enough to warrant that. But as we look more broadly and we look at these risks, I would, I would make two points. One is we are very focused on this, uh, this issue of transition in two respects. The first is trying to understand which companies and which business models today are the most well-prepared to actually navigate effectively and in fact, um, effectively take advantage of what we believe will be an accelerated transition toward a low carbon economy. Um, and if you, if you take that perspective, yeah, what it allows you to do is not look, for example, at you know, the entire energy sector or, or all companies that are involved in traditional energy and look at them sort of monolithically, but instead say some of those companies are making significant changes to their business model taking a lot of their current R&D and CapEx and investing it in different ways. And some of them are. And from a risk perspective, investment perspective, those differences are really important when you're trying to think about which companies will actually be best positioned uh, in the future. And we use that not only in terms of allocating uh, risk capital, but also engaging with companies where we own uh, equity in those companies on behalf of our, uh, 
uh, our clients. And that is connected to the work of Climate Action 100 that we are now uh, supportive of and, and partnering on. The last point I would make, though, that is connected with transition is that ultimately the pace of the global low carbon transition will be dictated by the ambition and the effectiveness of government policy globally. Um, and as somebody who spent a, a lot of time working to and, and uh, getting the Paris Agreement agreed to and then entered into force in 2015 and 2016, um, I think you, you look at that framework and you see in it the potential for countries to increasingly increase the ambition of their national policies, their nationally determined commitments in a way that would signal long-term, the long-term trajectory of how the economy will decarbonize uh, that would then accelerate massive transformations of capital and shifting of, of, of private capital. Obviously, the state of global policy is not where it needs to be. I think that we will see an acceleration, but the more that that ends up happening too late and in a uncoordinated way that doesn't provide those long-term signals, the more challenging it's going to be uh, for capital to actually move and accelerate this process. Pratima, I want to ask you, you know, the whole divestment uh, conversation focuses on publicly traded oil companies, uh, people who know the markets deeply. You know, most of the hydrocarbon reserves are actually held by state-owned oil companies that shareholders divestment can't get at, China, Saudi Arabia, et cetera. So actually, you have a window into that world because a couple of state-owned or semi-state-owned oil companies from Brazil and China are involved in, in your work. Uh, so tell us what window you have into the big part of the oil market that is not talked about in this whole divestment conversation. That's absolutely right, Greg. I mean, I think divestment has done a good job in raising public awareness about climate challenge. And that is important. But in terms of actual climate impact, we don't really see it um, in, on the emissions. And um, that's because it's not really effective Divestment isn't such an effective tool where other forms of investment or other forms of capital are available. It's not a great tool when you think about nationally driven, as you said, oil companies, which is where a lot of this uh, is. And um, it covers, it looks at all fossil fuels as the same. Whereas if you really, when we need to solve real problems, we have to be contextual. And we have to look at what countries, what regions are capable of, and what they need as well. A one-size-fits-all approach is great on paper, but in reality, one cannot use the same approach in Europe as and in Africa. In Africa, 57% of the population doesn't even have access to basic forms of energy. It just isn't the same story. And as Brian said, we cannot forget people in this. It has to be an equitable and a just transition. It cannot just be financial. So if you look for something that's really a much stronger, potent tool in getting to the in answering the climate challenge, I absolutely agree with Brian. It is policy. Policy can drive us to scale a lot faster, and we can actually hit the carbon challenge in the time frame we have. And the first thing there is to put a value on carbon. Two centuries of economic history tell us that we will not change behaviors unless we value uh, what we are talking about and we need a value on carbon. That's just plain and simple. 
And we need to put all our political will um, behind this, all our you know, economic and political. From an investor viewpoint, I think it's much more effective to do what Brian was talking about, which is work with the companies, work with entities, work with regions to reward companies that are ahead of the curve. And, uh, and that's really important. What we're seeing with the divestment uh, regime is that there are some real uh, regions of need where we have to take a much more nuanced view. And so we're making no progress instead of making substantive progress because all or nothing is not a very good, uh, very good option everywhere. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about using our investment portfolios for change. Coming up, when it comes to socially responsible investing, let the buyer beware. There are a lot of firms that will check the box to say we're doing environmental social governance uh, investing. But when you look behind the scenes and see what companies they're investing in, most of those wouldn't even meet the standards. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about investing for change with Pratima Rangarajan of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, Brian Deese of BlackRock, and Lori Keith of Parnassus Investments. This conversation was recorded with a live online audience earlier this year. As oil companies talk about moving into renewables, I think of the hokey pokey. They put one toe in, they pull one toe out, and mostly seems like greenwashing and marketing. So are fossil fuel companies making real investments in cleaner energy as a percentage of their overall capital expenditures or CapEx? Lori Keith explains. You know, as you know, investors, certainly in the mid-cap space uh, for Parnassus mid-cap fund, we're not seeing that uh, certainly across, you know, many of the shale independents in North America, we're we're not seeing any movement uh, towards renewables at this point. Uh, All of the capital expenditures are really going back into the ground uh, to try to enhance recoveries in those existing shale wells or for additional acquisitions. Uh, And so, you know, we think there's there's not, there has yet to be an appetite to really shift away from fossil uh, fuel and shale development uh, by many of the players. Certainly there are, you know, those one-offs, uh, you know, internationally and some of the very large players uh, that are starting that route. Uh, but we think it's going to be a long road, frankly. And, you know, in the meantime, we think there's going to be significant risk uh, to many of the players, particularly, you know, when we're looking at commodity prices today, you know, certainly $20 per barrel on the West Texas Intermediate, uh, today's price uh, at that level uh, certainly, you know, the Kansas City Fed put out a projection that 40% of energy companies in North America potentially will be bankrupt within one year at this commodity price, many of those being smaller players. But we think you know, there's very significant risk. And so as an investor, you know, you're really having to bet on an increase in commodity price for these stocks to work. And the economics simply aren't there. Pratima, Lori Keith talked about the mid-range companies. Uh, there's You deal with like the super majors, the, the global giants. Uh, we have a, a question from Lala on, on YouTube. Will the oil and gas companies invest more or less in clean tech in 2021? So what are you seeing? I understand that your fund is separate from the companies. They, they all put some money in. You don't, uh, It's a separate entity. But does that trickle into larger investments uh, by the oil and gas companies and some of the clean technologies that they might discover in your fund or, or learn about? 
about? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, two points. One is that the money they put in our company is separate from what they already do. So if we look at Equinor, they do offshore wind. Every one of the companies has their own portfolio of clean technologies. But if we look at the but but to be fair, it's it's a small part of their overall expenditure, right? I mean, it's it's one percent, two percent. I mean, of what they spend. Well, there's there, it is a small part, but you know, when you look at what it actually takes, the capex it takes to go drilling for oil, it's not the same capex when you set up a wind farm. Right? I come from the wind side of the business, so we we just don't run so capex rich in general. Um, and I think you're going to see the changes. You're going to see the changes in the business models because. That's what we need. The world is going to need it. Um, COVID's going to, I think, in some ways, increase the pace because we're going to have recovery plans. And sometimes crisis makes you look at things very differently. We're not going to come back to the same place. But in terms of our fund, the billion plus dollars that we have in our fund, so the OGCI member companies do give us that as a investment capital. But in, in addition to being investment capital, they also co-invest with us in some of our investments. They are, um, they actually, but more most importantly, they are collaborators. They take our companies, our innovations, they pilot them, they test them, and they're actually deploying them at scale right now. So that's really important because we need to shorten the time for commercialization, time for impact. And then... Uh, when we also take on some difficult projects, that's when they become really, really important partners for us. They take it over from us. So in, in the UK, we have a carbon capture utilization storage project. It's very ambitious. CI grew it over the last three years. And the goal is to decarbonize the entire Northeast of England. And this project grew out of our, our capabilities as a small investment fund and has now been taken on by five of our member OGCR member companies. And they're going to take it out to operationalize. Now, this is not a typical type of project. This is really important for a couple of reasons. One is not a typical project that they would normally invest in. They're doing this to, in order to demonstrate that we can decarbonize industrials across an entire region. When they do this, What's the most important thing is that they will be able to transition the technologies, the resources, the knowledge they have into the industrial sector and allow for the decarbonization of a neighboring sector. So these are all the ways we work with them. So yes, the impact is much broader than what we do as a fund. We're just the catalyst. We have some questions from uh, John Murphy on YouTube. Uh, I want to invest sustainably, but I'm overwhelmed by the enormity of Googling green investing or sustainable mutual funds. Uh, can someone please suggest good information sources for individual investors? Lori Keith, where should a, a person who wants to go green look for investment information? First of all, I, I would suggest, you know, really looking at the spectrum of what the offerings are, certainly going directly to websites uh, offered by individual mutual funds. As an example, you can really get a sense, what is it that they own? Because I think it's really important you know, as, a, as an investor to understand what are those companies that are truly being invested in? How are they disclosing, you know, for instance, their proxy policy? How are they voting as it relates to issues around climate change? Full transparency, I think, is really important. And so I would definitely encourage one to go out and look at the information that's provided on those websites. 
see if there is a report, uh, uh, any sort of shareholder sustainability reporting that is provided on an annual basis, an engagement report, see what type of engagements that firms are involved with. For us as uh, investors at Parnassus, I mean, we're very actively involved in engagement efforts uh, with a number of our, our, our uh, in investment holdings. And we report out on what we're doing and, and what stage those engagement efforts are in. So I think that can be very helpful, but I do think it's really important to understand because there are a lot of firms that will check the box that say we're doing environmental social governance uh, investing. But when you look behind the scenes and see what companies they're investing in, most of those wouldn't even meet the standards uh, as it relates to environmental social governance standing. So I think it's really important to understand what you own. And I would definitely recommend going directly to websites to, and, and look at the shareholder reports. Uh, certainly, you know, for myself, I just authored the recent quarterly report uh, that will be coming out shortly. We do that every quarter and you can read through those reports uh, and, and plain English and see, you know, what the strategies are and what they're investing in. I think that's really important. Sometimes they're in plain English. Another useful tool uh, is uh, fossilfreefunds.org. Really useful tool. You can plug in the ticker for any fund, and you can see that a lot of the, the funds that pretend to be fossil-free or low-carbon, there's a lot of carbon in there. Brian Dees. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on this and say, and say something said earlier about, um, you know, we're, we're, we've learned from decades of financial research that the most important decision that an individual investor makes is actually at the portfolio construction level. And one of the things that's really exciting about the space that we're in now is whereas a decade ago, it was much more that, that actually people's choices were constrained to a limited number of sort of sustainable funds that were in one, one sector. So just equity, not fixed income. Uh, maybe uh, had, it took a lot of risk, uh, which might be appropriate for somebody who has a you know very significant uh, risk appetite, uh, but but not build a whole portfolio. Now there are a wealth of building block exposures, low cost, uh, straightforward that an investor can start. So I would say the other thing you could do is start whether it's with your financial advisor or with websites like you're saying, and start at the start at the initial question. If you're building a 60-40 portfolio, portfolio, how can you think about embedding sustainability in the core of what you're doing, not just in thinking about, you know, um, having a, a satellite exposure to, you know, 5% of the, of, the, of the money in your portfolio to go into an SRI fund? That's a really exciting change. And, it, you know, we're seeing a democratization of access to underlying building blocks. Now, to your point. You need to look at what uh, below that the headline label. You need to understand, particularly if you're getting screened funds, what they screen out. Um, you know, I would say, in fairness, there is no one unified definition of fossil fuel. Every company, including you know renewable energy companies, cons uses uh, uh, consumes energy uh, of one form or another. Um, but with that said, the number of choices and the quality of products has exploded recently. And I would just encourage think about that question when you start building your portfolio. Not just when you're at the end and you say, I want to get get some exposure to uh, to you know to an SRI fund. If you're just joining us, we're talking about investing in fossil fuels and cleaner forms of energy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Brian Deese, Global Head of Sustainable Investing at BlackRock, Lori Keith, Portfolio Manager with Parnassus Investments, Pratima Rangarjan, CEO of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, an investment fund backed by some of the world's largest oil companies, and Ann Simpson, Director of Board Governance and Strategy at CalPERS, the California Public Employees Retirement System, the largest pension fund 
in the United States. And as we wrap up, I'm, I'm hearing this, you know, conversation again, thinking about, you know, half of Americans don't have uh, participation in the market. And we're in a time of uh, severe economic distress where people are difficulty paying rent. Unemployment is, is, is in the double digits. So I want to end and, and think about, ask of you something you're grateful for and, and something that maybe evoke some empathy for people who feel, frankly, excluded by this conversation we're having because they don't have access to, to markets and, and retirement plans because so many Americans and others live paycheck to paycheck. Pratima, you're, you spoke earlier about other parts of the, the world that are less energy fortunate than we are talking on this conversation. Your thoughts on kind of empathy and gratitude at this time of global economic pain? Greg, I think um, COVID has, um, has shown us some of the real gaps in our society when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to social net for people, young people, even young people or older people both parts of society are finding themselves in, in difficult times right now. There are kids out there who are not getting their meals when schools are not open, right? And, um, and there's some real parallels between what we're seeing in COVID and the climate challenge. It, they're both going to affect the people at, at, the, you know, at the, the difficult parts of society where you know, things, the poorer parts of our society more. They're going to affect some poorer nations more. And I think we really got to start thinking about coming out of COVID-19 as we look at our economic recovery plans. We really got to think harder about our social recovery plans and how do we transition even through this climate in a just equitable way for all. Where I hear the most about divestment isn't the halls of Imperial and Oxford and Cambridge when I'm in London. I don't hear about it when I'm sitting on a panel in India. There they ask, please, can we have gas power? Gas is too expensive for us, but the coal is choking the kids. The emissions, uh, you know, in Delhi were terrible. So it's just a, you know, I think we do have to think about we're very privileged and there are multiple ways of uh, multiple lenses we should be looking at the world right now. And I hope maybe COVID has, has really opened our minds to some of that. Brian Deese, your thoughts on that privilege at, at this moment when there's so much um, pain in the, in the economy? Look, I'm enormously grateful for the uh, health of my kids uh, and uh, my partner and my family. I'm incredibly grateful and awed by the um, heroism of the frontline workers and healthcare uh, officials who are not sitting as we all are uh, in our homes, um, uh, facing challenges of our own, but are out on the front lines helping to fight um, this uh, physical threat uh, to our lives uh, and our economy. And I'm also very aware at this moment that, as Pratima says, this is these types of physical threats are accelerants to the type of inequality that was already uh, really hitting societies within countries and between countries. And you know, um, if you live in Atlanta today, you're 15% more likely to die from coronavirus than if you live 15 miles outside in the suburbs because the local air quality in Atlanta is bad and it, it exacerbates res respiratory diseases. As we move into the winter in the Southern hemisphere and we see this crisis extend into emerging market economies, we're going to see the kind of um, disproportionate impact where you see the intersection between 
air quality, and pandemic. We know the, the, the intersection between climate change and disease. Uh, it was coronavirus here, but we see the extension of vector-borne illnesses as climates change, and in fact, as habitats uh, and humans start to intersect with each other. Uh, and so as a global community, we need to be much more capable of actually preparing and being in front of this. But I would say, you know, to your point about um, a gratitude and empathy, I would add to it urgency, because even as we're talking about these sort of how do we get to these longer term issues, the actions that government policymakers, that uh, first responders, that um, uh, that health professionals and then investors take in the next weeks and months will help to also reinforce whether or not we can come out of this having blunted some of the worst impacts of that or not. So I also, in addition to feeling that gratitude and the sense of connectivity to these larger challenges, I also feel a certain urgency around this, around making sure that we're doing everything we can um, to not have a, uh, the impacts of this crisis, which already will be huge even more as we move into the next phase or phases of this, uh, of this epidemic. Lori Keith, what gives you hope when you think about urgency, gratitude, and empathy? Yeah, I would echo much of what's been said uh, so far, you know, but I think, you know, we're very fortunate. You know, I saw a journal article, Wall Street Journal article today, you know, highlighting that only about 37% of Americans can actually work remotely. So I, I feel very fortunate that I'm one of those people that are able to continue my job work remotely. My three children are, are, are all able to continue with their distance learning. But frankly, there's a whole rest of the society that is not able to do that. And so, you know, we have essential workers really on the front line, whether it be healthcare professionals, first responders, grocery clerks, you know, many of them, you know, historically haven't really been taken care of in terms of worker pay, you know, benefits, things that are, you know, now considered very essential for our society to operate. So I think this emphasis around investing in human, human capital management, investing in employees, I think that is something, you know, as we look to invest in companies that are going to be sustainable over multiple years, that is such a critical function. And I do feel very strongly that coming out of that, there's going to be this resurgence of, you know, making sure that companies are aligning their longer term strategy with really investing in their talent base. Uh, that's really critical. So that's one of my hopes uh, and certainly one of the structural shifts that I, I hope comes out of this. We've been talking about sustainable investing with Lori Keith, Portfolio Manager with Parnassus Investments, Pratima Rangarajan, CEO of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, and Brian Deese, Global Head of Sustainable Investing at BlackRock. After this was recorded, President-elect Joe Biden appointed Deese to head his National Economic Council at the White House. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by telling a friend. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.